Chapter 5 Bealby, A Holiday This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros Bealby, A Holiday by H. G. Wells Chapter 5 The Seeking of Bealby Part 1 Subchapter 1 On the same Monday evening that witnessed Bealby's first experience of the theatre, Mr. Mergelson, the house steward of Chance, walked slowly and thoughtfully across the corner of the park between the laundry and the gardens. His face was much recovered from the accidents of his collision with the Lord Chancellor. Resort to raw meat in the kitchen had checked the development of his injuries, and only a few contusions in the side of his face were more than faintly traceable. And suffering had on the whole rather ennobled than depressed his bearing. He had a black eye, but it was not, he felt, a common black eye. It came from high quarters, and through no fault of Mr. Mergelson's own. He carried it well. It was a fruit of duty, rather than the outcome of wanton pleasure-seeking or misdirected passion. He found Mr. Darling in profound meditation over some peach-trees against the wall. They were not doing so well as they ought to do, and Mr. Darling was engaged in wondering why. "'Good evening, Mr. Darling,' said Mr. Mergelson. Mr. Darling ceased rather slowly to wander, and turned to his friend. "'Good evening, Mr. Mergelson,' he said. "'I don't quite like the look of these here peaches. Blowed if I do.' Mr. Mergelson glanced at the peaches, and then came to the matter that was nearest his heart. "'You haven't, I suppose, seen anything of your stepson these last two days, Mr. Darling?' "'Naturally not,' said Mr. Darling, putting his head on one side and regarding his interlocutor. "'Naturally not. I've left that to you, Mr. Mergelson.' "'Well, that's what's awkward,' said Mr. Mergelson, and then with a forced easiness. "'You see, I ain't seen him either.' "'No?' "'No. I lost sight of him.' Mr. Mergelson appeared to reflect. "'Late on Saturday night.' "'How's that, Mr. Mergelson?' Mr. Mergelson considered the difficulties of lucid explanation. "'We missed him,' said Mr. Mergelson simply, regarding the well-weeded garden path with a calculating expression, and then lifting his eyes to Mr. Darling's with an air of great candor. "'And we continue to miss him.' "'Well,' said Mr. Darling, "'that's rum.' "'Yes,' said Mr. Mergelson. "'It's decidedly rum,' said Mr. Darling.' "'We thought he might be idling from his work, or cut off home.' "'You didn't send down to ask.' "'We was too busy with the weekend people. "'On the all we thought if he had cut home, on the all it wasn't a very serious loss. "'He got in the way at times, and there was one or two things happened. "'Now that they're all gone and he hasn't turned up, "'well, I came down, Mr. Darlin', to arst you. "'Where is he gone?' "'He ain't come here,' said Mr. Darling, surveying the garden. "'I arf expected he might, and I arf expected he mightn't,' said Mr. Mergelson, with the air of one who had anticipated Mr. Darling's answer, but hesitated to admit as much. The two gentlemen paused for some seconds, and regarded each other searchingly. "'Where's he got to?' said Mr. Darling. 
"'Well,' said Mr. Mergelson, putting his hands where the tails of his short jacket would have been, if it hadn't been short, and looking extraordinarily like a parrot in its more thoughtful moods, "'to tell you the truth, Mr. Darling, I've had a dream about him, and it worries me. I got a sort of idea of him as being in one of them secret passages. Iden away. There was a guest, well, I say it with all respect, but anyone might have id from him.' morning soon as the weekend had cleared up and gone home me and thomas went through them passages as well as we could not a trace of em but i still got that idea he was a regular climbing enterprising sort of boy i've checked him for it once or twice said mr darling with the red light of fierce memories gleaming for a moment in his eyes he might even said mr mergelson well very likely have got himself jammed in one of them secret passages jammed repeated mr darling well got himself somewhere where he can't get out i've heard tell there's walled-up dungeons they say said mr darling there's underground passages to the abbey ruins three good mile away awkward said mr mergelson Dratch's eyes, said Mr. Darling, scratching his head. What does he mean by it? We can't leave him there, said Mr. Mergelson. I knowed a young devil once what crawled up a culvert, said Mr. Darling. His father had to dig him out like a fox. Lord, how he walloped him for it. Mistake to have a boy in so young, said Mr. Mergelson. It's all very awkward, said Mr. Darling, surveying every aspect of the case. You see... His mother sets a most extraordinary value on him, most extraordinary. I don't know whether she oughtn't to be told, said Mr. Mergelson. I was thinking of that. Mr. Darling was not the sort of man to meet trouble halfway. He shook his head at that. Not yet, Mr. Mergelson. I don't think yet. Not until everything's been tried. I don't think there's any need to give her needless distress, none whatever. If you don't mind, I think I'll come up to-night, nine-ish, say, and have a talk to you and Thomas about it. A quiet talk. Best to begin with a quiet talk. It's a dashed rum go. And me and you, we got to think it out a bit. That's what I think, said Mr. Mergelson, with unconcealed relief at Mr. Darling's friendliness. That's exactly the light, Mr. Darling, in which it appears to me. "'Because, you see, if he's all right and in the house, why doesn't he come for his victuals?' Subchapter 2 In the pantry that evening, the question of telling someone was discussed further. It was discussed over a number of glasses of Mr. Mergelson's beer. For following a sound tradition, Mr. Mergelson brewed at Chance, and sometimes he brewed well, and sometimes he brewed ill, and sometimes he brewed weak, and sometimes he brewed strong and there was no monotony in the cups at chance this was sturdy stuff and suited mr darling's mood and ever and again with an author's natural weakness and an affectation of abstraction mr mergelson took the jug out empty and brought it back foaming henry the second footman was disposed to a forced hopefulness so as not to spoil the evening but thomas was sympathetic and distressed the red-haired youth made cigarettes with a little machine, licked them, and offered them to the others, saying little, as became him. Etiquette deprived him of an uninvited beer, and Mr. Merkelson's inattention completed what etiquette began. 
I can't bear to think of the poor little beggar, stuck head foremost into some cobwebby cranny. Bloat if I can, said Thomas, getting help from the jug. He was an interesting kid, said Thomas, in a tone that was frankly obituary. He didn't like his work, one could see that. But he was lively, and I tried to help him along all I could, when I wasn't too busy myself. There was something sensitive about him, said Thomas. Mr. Mergelson sat with his arms loosely thrown out over the table. What we got to do is tell someone, he said. I don't see how I can put off telling her ladyship after tomorrow morning, and then, Evan help us. Course I got to tell my missus, said Mr. Darling, and poured in a preoccupied way, some running over. We'll go through them passages again now before we go to bed, said Mr. Mergelson, far as we can, but there is alls and chinks only a boy could get through. I got to tell the missus, said Mr. Darling, that's what's worrying me. As the evening wore on, there was a tendency on the part of Mr. Darling to make this the refrain of his discourse. He sought advice. "'How'd you tell the missus?' he asked Mr. Merkelson, and emptied a glass to control his impatience before Mr. Merkelson replied. "'I shall tell her ladyship just simply the fact. I shall say, your ladyship, here's my boy gone, and we don't know where. And as she asks me questions, so shall I give particulars.' Mr. Darling reflected and then shook his head slowly. "'How'd you tell the missus?' he asked Thomas. "'Glad I haven't got to,' said Thomas. "'Poor little beggar.' "'Yes, but how would you tell her?' Mr. Darling said, varying the accent very carefully. "'I'd go to her and I'd pat her back and I'd say, "'Bear up, see. "'And when she asks what for, I'd just tell her what for, gradual-like.' "'You don't know the missus,' said Mr. Darling.' "'Henry, how'd you tell her?' "'Let her find out,' said Henry. "'Women do.' Mr. Darling reflected, and decided that two was unworkable. "'How'd you?' he asked, with an air of desperation of the red-haired youth. The red-haired youth remained for a moment with his tongue extended, licking the gum of a cigarette paper, and his eyes on Mr. Darling. Then he finished the cigarette slowly, giving his mind very carefully to the question he had been honoured with. "'I think,' he said, in a low, serious voice, "'I should say just simply Mary, or Susan, or whatever her name is.' "'Tilda,' supplied Mr. Darling. "'Tilda, I should say, the Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Tilda, he's gone.' "'Something like that.' The red-haired boy cleared his throat. He was rather touched by his own simple eloquence. Mr. Darling reflected on this with profound satisfaction for some moments. Then he broke out almost querulously. "'Yes, but brast him. Where's he gone?' "'Anyhow,' said Mr. Darling, "'I ain't going to tell her not till the morning. I ain't going to lose my night's rest if I have lost my stepson. No how.' "'Mr. Mergelson, I must say, I don't think I ever have tasted better beer. Never. It's, it's famous beer.' He had some more. On his way back through the moonlight to the gardens, Mr. Darling was still unsettled as to the exact way of breaking things to his wife. He had come out from the house a little ruffled, because of Mr. Mergelson's opposition to a rather good idea of his, that he should go about the house and holler for him a bit.' 
He'd know my voice, you see. Ladyship wouldn't mind. Very likely sleep by now. But the moonlight dispelled his irritation. How was he to tell his wife? He tried various methods to the listening moon. There was, for example, the off-hand newsy way. You know that boy yours? Then a pause for the reply. Then, he's totally disappeared. Only there were difficulties about the word totally. Or the distressed impersonal manner. Dreadful thing happened. Dreadful thing. That poor little chap, Artie, totally disappeared. Totally again. Or the personal intimate note. Don't know what you'll say to me, Tilda, when I tell you what to got to say. Thoroughly bad news. Seems they lost our Artie up there. Clean lost him. Can't find him nowhere at all. Or the authoritative kindly. Tilda, you go control yourself. Go show what you're made of. Our boy, he's <laughs> lost. Then he addressed the park at large with a sudden despair. Don't care what I say, she'll blame it on to me, I know her. After that, the enormous pathos of the situation got hold of him. Poor little chap, he said, poor little fell, and shed a few natural tears. Loved him just as me on son. As the circumambient knight made no reply, he repeated the remark in a louder, almost domineering tone. He spent some time trying to climb the garden wall, because the door did not seem to be in the usual place. Have to inquire about that in the morning. Difficult to see everything is all right when one is so bereaved. But finally he came on the door round a corner. He told his wife merely that he intended to have a peaceful night, and took off his boots in a defiant and intermittent manner. The morning would be soon enough. She looked at him pretty hard, and he looked at her ever and again, but she never made a guess at it. Bed. Subchapter 3 So soon as the weekenders had dispersed, and Sir Peter had gone off to London to attend to various matters affecting the peptonizing of milk and the distribution of baby soothers about the habitable globe, Lady Laxton went back to bed and remained in bed until midday on Tuesday. Nothing short of complete rest and the utmost kindness from her maid would, she felt, save her from a nervous breakdown of the most serious description. The festival had been stormy to the end. Sir Peter's ill-advised attempts to deprive Lord Moggridge of alcohol had led to a painful struggle at lunch, and this had been followed by a still more unpleasant scene between host and guest in the afternoon. This is an occasion for tact, Sir Peter had said, and had gone off to tackle the Lord Chancellor, leaving his wife to the direst, best-founded apprehensions. For Sir Peter's tact was a thing by itself, a mixture of misconception, reclamation, and familiarity that was rarely well received. She had had to explain to the Sunday dinner party that his lordship had been called away suddenly. Something connected with the great seal, Lady Laxton had whispered in a discreet, mysterious whisper. One or two simple hearers were left with the persuasion that the great seal had been taken suddenly unwell, and probably in a slightly indelicate manner. Thomas had to paint Mergelson's eye with grease paint left over from some private theatricals. 
it had been a patched-up affair altogether and before she retired to bed that night lady laxton had given way to her accumulated tensions and wept there was no reason whatever why to wind up the day sir peter should have stayed in her room for an hour saying what he thought of lord moggridge she felt she knew quite well enough what he thought of lord moggridge and on these occasions he always used a number of words that she did her best to believe as a delicately brought-up woman were unfamiliar to her ears so on monday as soon as the guests had gone she went to bed again and stayed there trying as a good woman should to prevent herself thinking of what the neighbours could be thinking and saying of the whole affair by studying a new and very circumstantial pamphlet by bishop fowle on social evils turning over the moving illustrations of some recent anti-vivisection literature and re-reading the accounts in the morning papers of a colliery disaster in the north of england to such women as lady laxton brought up in an atmosphere of refinement that is almost colourless and living a life troubled only by small social conflicts and the minor violence of sir peter blameless to the point of complete uneventfulness and secure and comfortable to the point of tedium there is something amounting to fascination in the wickedness and sufferings of more normally situated people there is a real attraction and solace in the thought of pain and stress and as her access to any other accounts of vice and suffering was restricted she kept herself closely in touch with the more explicit literature of the various movements for human moralization that distinguish our age and responded eagerly and generously to such painful catastrophes as enliven it the counterfoils of her cheque-book witnessed to her gratitude for these vicarious sensations she figured herself to herself in her daydreams as a calm and white and shining intervention checking and reproving amusements of an undesirable nature and earning the tearful blessings of the mangled by-products of industrial enterprise there is a curious craving for entire reality in the feminine composition and there were times when in spite of these feasts of particulars she wished she could come just a little nearer to the heady dreadfulnesses of life than simply writing a check against it she would have liked to have actually seen the votaries of evil blench and repent before her contributions to have herself unstrapped and revived and pitied some doomed and chloroformed victim of the so-called scientist to have herself participated in the stretcher and the hospital and humanity made marvellous by enlistment under the red cross badge but sir peter's ideals of womanhood were higher than his language and he would not let her soil her refinement with any vision of the pain and evil in the world sort of woman they want up there is a trained nurse he used to say when she broached the possibility of going to some famine or disaster you don't want to go prying old girl she suffered she felt from repressed heroism if ever she was to shine in disaster that disaster she felt must come to her she must not go to meet it and so you realize how deeply it stirred her how it brightened her and uplifted her to learn from mr murgelson's halting statements that perhaps that probably 
that almost certainly a painful and tragical thing was happening even now within the walls of Chantz, that there was urgent necessity for action, if anguish was to be witnessed before it had ended, and life saved. She clasped her hands, she surveyed her large servitor, with agonized green-gray eyes. Something must be done at once, she said. Everything possible must be done. Poor little mite! Of course my lady may have run away. Oh, no, she cried. He hasn't run away. He hasn't run away. How can you be so wicked, Mergelson? Of course he hasn't run away. He's there now, and it's too dreadful. She became suddenly very firm and masterful. The morning's colliery tragedy inspired her imagination. We must get pickaxes, she said. We must organize search parties. Not a moment is to be lost, Mergelson. Not a moment. Get the men in off the roads. Get everyone you can. And not a moment was lost. The road men were actually at work in Chantz before their proper dinner hour was over. They did quite a lot of things that afternoon. Every passage attainable from the dining-room opening was explored, and where these passages gave off chinks and crannies they were opened up with a vigour which Lady Laxton had greatly stimulated by an encouraging presence and liberal doses of whisky. Through their efforts a fine new opening was made into the library from the wall near the window, a hole big enough for a man to fall through, because one did and a great piece of stonework was thrown down from the Queen Elizabeth Tower, exposing the upper portion of the secret passage to the light of day. Lady Laxton herself and the head housemaid went round the panelling with a hammer and a chisel, and called out, "'Are you there?' and attempted an opening wherever it sounded hollow. The sweep was sent for to go up the old chimneys outside the present flues, meanwhile mr darling had been sent with several of his men to dig for discover pick up and lay open the underground passage or disused drain whichever it was that was known to run from the corner of the laundry towards the old ice-house and that was supposed to reach to the abbey ruins after some bold exploratory excavations this channel was located and a report sent at once to lady laxton it was this, and the new and alarming scar on the Queen Elizabeth Tower, that brought Mr. Beaulieu Plummer post-haste from the estate office up to the house. Mr. Beaulieu Plummer was the Marquis of Cranberry's estate agent, a man of great natural tact, and charged, among other duties, with the task of seeing that the Laxtons did not make away with shants during the period of their tenancy he was a sound compact little man rarely out of the extreme riding breeches and gaiters and he wore glasses that now glittered with astonishment as he approached lady laxton and her band of spade workers at his approach mr darling attempted to become invisible but he was unable to do so lady laxton mr beaulieu plummer appealed may i ask "'Oh, Mr. Beaulieu Plummer, I'm so glad you've come. "'A little boy, suffocating. "'I can hardly bear it.' "'Suffocating?' cried Mr. Beaulieu Plummer. "'Where?' and was in a confused manner told. "'He asked a number of questions that Lady Laxton found very tiresome. "'But how did she know the boy was in the secret passage? 
Of course she knew. Was it likely she would do all this if she didn't know? But mightn't he have run away? How could he when he was in the secret passages? But why not first scour the countryside? By which time he would be smothered and starved and dead? They parted with a mutual loss of esteem, and Mr. Beaulieu Plummer, looking very serious indeed, ran as fast as he could straight to the village telegraph office. Or, to be more exact, he walked until he thought himself out of sight of Lady Laxton, and then he took to his heels and ran. He sat for some time in the parlor post-office, spoiling telegraph forms and composing telegrams to Sir Peter Laxton and Lord Cranberry. He got these off at last, and then, drawn by an irresistible fascination, went back to the park and watched from afar the signs of fresh activities on the part of Lady Laxton. He saw men coming from the direction of the stables with large rakes. With these they dragged the ornamental waters. Then a man with a pickaxe appeared against the skyline and crossed the roof in the direction of the clock tower, bound upon some unknown but probably highly destructive mission. Then he saw Lady Laxton going off to the gardens. She was going to console Mrs. Darling in her trouble. This she did through nearly an hour and a half, and on the whole it seemed well to Mr. Beaulieu Plummer that so she should be occupied. It was striking five when a telegraph boy on a bicycle came up from the village with a telegram from Sir Peter Laxton. Stop all proceedings absolutely, it said, until I get to you. Lady Laxton's lips tightened at the message. She was back from much weeping with Mrs. Darling, and altogether finely strung. Here, she felt, was one of those supreme occasions when a woman must assert herself. A matter of life or death, she wired in reply, and to show herself how completely she overrode such dictation as this, she sent Mr. Merkelson down to the village public house with orders to engage anyone he could find there for an evening's work on an extraordinarily liberal overtime scale. After taking this step, the spirit of Lady Laxton quailed. She went and sat in her own room and quivered. She quivered, but she clenched her delicate fist. She would go through with it, come what might. She would go on with the excavation all night if necessary. But at the same time she began a little to regret that she had not taken earlier steps to demonstrate the improbability of Bilby having simply run away. She set to work to repair this omission. She wrote off to the superintendent of police in the neighboring town, to the nearest police magistrate, and then, on the off chance, to various of her weekend guests, including Captain Douglas. If it was true that he had organized the annoyance of the Lord Chancellor, and though she still rejected that view, she did now begin to regard it as a permissible hypothesis, then he might also know something about the mystery of this boy's disappearance. Each letter she wrote, she wrote with greater fatigue and haste than its predecessor, and more illegibly. Sir Peter arrived long after dark. He cut across the corner of the park to save time, and fell into one of the trenches that Mr. Darling had opened. This added greatly to the eclat with which he came into the hall. 
Lady Laxton withstood him for five minutes, and then returned abruptly to her bedroom and locked herself in, leaving the control of the operations in his hands. "'If he's not in the house,' said Sir Peter, "'all this is thundering foolery, and if he's in the house, he's dead. If he's dead, he'll smell in a bit, and then'll be the time to look for him. Something to go upon instead of all this blind hacking the place about.' No wonder they're threatening proceedings. Subchapter 4 Upon Captain Douglas, Lady Laxton's letter was destined to have a very distracting effect, because, as he came to think it over, as he came to put her partly illegible allusions to secret passages and a missing boy side by side with his memories of Lord Moggridge's accusations and the general mystery of his expulsion from Shantz, it became more and more evident to him that he had here something remarkably like a clue, something that might serve to lift the black suspicion of irreverence and levity from his military reputation. And he had already got to the point of suggesting to Miss Phillips that he ought to follow up and secure Bilby forthwith before ever they came over the hill crest to witness the disaster to the caravan. Captain Douglas, it must be understood, was a young man at war within himself. He had been very nicely brought up, firstly in a charming English home, then in a preparatory school for selected young gentlemen, then in a good set at Eton, then at Sandhurst, where the internal trouble had begun to manifest itself, afterwards the Bistershires. There were three main strands in the composition of Captain Douglas. In the first place, and what was peculiarly his own quality, was the keenest interest in the why of things, and the how of things, and the general mechanism of things. He was fond of clocks, curious about engines, eager for science, he had a quick brain, and nimble hands. He read Jules Verne, and liked to think about going to the stars, and making flying machines and submarines in those days when everybody knew quite certainly that such things were impossible. His brain teemed with larval ideas that only needed air and light to become active, full-fledged ideas. There he excelled most of us. In the next place, but this second strand was just a strand that most young men have. He had a natural keen interest in the other half of humanity. He thought them lovely, interesting, wonderful, and they filled him with warm curiosities, and set his imagination cutting the prettiest capers. And in the third place, and there again he was ordinarily human, he wanted to be liked, admired, approved, well thought of and so constituted he had passed through the educational influence of that English home, that preparatory school, the good set at Eton, the Sandhurst discipline, the Bistershire mess. Now the educational influence of the English home, the preparatory school, the good set at Eton and Sandhurst in those days, though Sandhurst has altered a little since, was all to develop that third chief strand of his being to the complete suppression of the others, to make him look well and unobtrusive, dress well and unobtrusively, behave well and unobtrusively, carry himself well, play games reasonably well, do nothing else well, and in the best possible form. 
and the two brothers douglas who were really very much alike did honestly do their best to be such plain and simple gentlemen as our country demands taking pretentious established things seriously and not being odd or intelligent in spite of those insurgent strands but the strands were in them below the surface the disturbing impulses worked and at last forced their way out in one Captain Douglas, as Mrs. Rampound Pilby told the Lord Chancellor, the suppressed ingenuity broke out in disconcerting mystifications and practical jokes that led to a severance from Portsmouth. In the other, the pent-up passions came out before the other ingredients in an uncontrollable devotion to the obvious and challenging femininity of Miss Madeleine Phillips his training had made him proof against ordinary women deaf as it were to their charms but she she had penetrated and impulsive forces that have been pent up go with a bang when they go the first strand in the composition of captain douglas has still to be accounted for the sinister strain of intelligence and inventiveness and lively curiosity on that he had kept a warier hold so far that had not been noted against him he had his motor-bicycle it is true at a time when motor-bicycles were on the verge of the caddish to what extent a watchful eye might have found him suspicious that was all that showed i wish i could add it was all that there was but other things other things were going on nobody knew about them but they were going on more and more he read books not decent fiction not official biographies about other fellows fathers and all the old anecdotes brought up to date and so on but books with ideas you know philosophy social philosophy scientific stuff all that rot the sort of stuff they read in mechanics institutes he thought he could have controlled it but he did not attempt to control it he tried to think he knew perfectly well that it wasn't good form but a vicious attraction drew him on he used to sit in his bedroom study at sandhurst with the door locked and write down on a bit of paper what he really believed and why he would cut all sorts of things to do this he would question things no properly trained english gentleman ever questions and he experimented this you know was long before the french and american aviators it was long before the coming of that emphatic lead from abroad without which no well-bred english mind permits itself to stir in the darkest secrecy he used to make little models of cane and paper and elastic in the hope that somehow he would find out something about flying flying that dream he used to go off by himself to lonely places and climb up as high as he could and send these things fluttering earthward he used to moon over them and muse about them if anyone came upon him suddenly while he was doing these things he would sit on his model or pretend it didn't belong to him or clap it into his pocket whichever was most convenient and assume the vacuous expression of a well-bred gentleman at leisure and so far nobody had caught him but it was a dangerous practice and finally and this now is the worst and last thing to tell of his eccentricities he was keenly interested in the science of his profession and intensely ambitious he thought 
though it wasn't his business to think the business of a junior officer is to obey and look a credit to his regiment that the military science of the british army was not nearly so bright as it ought to be and that if big trouble came there might be considerable scope for an inventive man who had done what he could to keep abreast with foreign work and a considerable weeding out of generals whose promotion had been determined entirely by their seniority amiability and unruffled connubial felicity he thought that the field artillery would be found out there was no good in making a fuss about it beforehand that no end of neglected dodges would have to be picked up from the enemy that the transport was feeble and a health service other than surgery and ambulance an unknown idea but he saw no remedy but experience so he worked hard in secret he worked almost as hard as some confounded foreigner might have done in the belief that after the first hard smash-up there might be a chance to do things outwardly of course he was sedulously all right but he could not quite hide the stir in his mind it broke out upon his surface in a chattering activity of incompleted sentences which he tried to keep as decently silly as he could he had done his utmost hitherto to escape the observation of the powers that were his infatuation for madeleine phillips had at any rate distracted censorious attention from these deeper infamies and now here was a crisis in his life through some idiotic entanglement manifestly connected with this missing boy he had got tarred by his brother's brush and was under grave suspicion for liveliness and disrespect the thing might be his professional ruin and he loved the suppressed possibilities of his work beyond measure it was a thing to make him absent-minded even in the company of madeleine subchapter five not only were the first and second strands in the composition of captain douglas in conflict with all his appearances and pretensions but they were also in conflict with one another he was full of that concealed resolve to do and serve and accomplish great things in the world that was surely purpose enough to hide behind an easy-going unpretending gentlemanliness but he was also tremendously attracted by madeleine phillips more particularly when she was not there a beautiful woman may be the inspiration of a great career this however he was beginning to find was not the case with himself he had believed it at first and written as much and said as much and said it very variously and gracefully but becoming more and more distinctly clear to his intelligence was the fact that the very reverse was the case miss madeleine phillips was making it very manifest to captain douglas that she herself was a career that a lover with any other career in view need not as the advertisements say apply and the time she took up the distress of being with her and the distress of not being with her she was such a proud and lovely and entrancing and distressing being to remember and such a vain and difficult thing to be with she knew clearly that she was made for love for she had made herself for love and she went through life like its empress with all mankind and numerous women at her feet 
and she had an ideal of the lover who should win her which was like an oleographic copy of a laszlo portrait of douglas greatly magnified he was to rise rapidly to great things he was to be a conqueror and administrator while attending exclusively to her and incidentally she would gather desperate homage from all other men of mark and these attentions would be an added glory to her love for him at first captain douglas had been quite prepared to satisfy all these requirements he had met her at shorncliffe for her people were quite good military people and he had worshipped his way straight to her feet he had made the most delightfully simple and delicate love to her he had given up his secret vice of thinking for the writing of quite surprisingly clever love-letters and the little white paper models had ceased for a time to flutter in lonely places and then the thought of his career returned to him from a new aspect as something he might lay at her feet and once it had returned to him it remained with him some day he said and it may not be so very long some of those scientific chaps will invent flying then the army will have to take it up you know i should love she said to soar through the air he talked one day of going on active service how would it affect them if he had to do so it was a necessary part of a soldier's lot but i should come too she said i should come with you it might not be altogether convenient he said for already he had learnt that madeleine phillips usually travelled with quite a large number of trunks and considerable impressiveness of course she said it would be splendid how could i let you go alone you would be the great general and i should be with you always not always very comfortable he suggested silly boy i shouldn't mind that how little you know me any hardship a woman if she isn't a nurse i should come dressed as a man i would be your groom he tried to think of her dressed as a man but nothing on earth could get his imagination any further than a vision of her dressed as a principal boy she was so delightfully and valiantly not virile her hair would have flowed her body would have moved a richly fluent femininity visible through any disguise subchapter six that was in the opening stage of the controversy between their careers in those days they were both acutely in love with each other their friends thought the spectacle quite beautiful they went together so well admirers fluttered with the pride of participation asked them for weekends together those theatrical weekends that begin on sunday morning and end on monday afternoon she confided widely and when at last there was something like a rupture it became the concern of a large circle of friends the particulars of the breach were differently stated it would seem that looking ahead he had announced his intention of seeing the french army manoeuvres just when it seemed probable that she would be out of an engagement but i ought to see what they are doing he said they're going to try those new dirigibles then should she come he wanted to whisk about it wouldn't be any fun for her they might get landed at nightfall in any old hole and besides people would talk especially as it was in france one could do unconventional things in england one couldn't do in france 
atmosphere was different. For a time, after that halting explanation, she maintained a silence. Then she spoke in a voice of deep feeling. She perceived, she said, that he wanted his freedom. She would be the last person to hold a reluctant lover to her side. He might go to any manoeuvres. He might go if he wished round the world. He might go away from her forever. She would not detain him cripple him, hamper a career she had once been assured she inspired. The unfortunate man, torn between his love and his profession, protested that he hadn't meant that. Then what had he meant? He realized he had meant something remarkably like it, and he found great difficulty in expressing these fine distinctions. She banished him from her presence for a month, said he might go to his manoeuvres with her blessing. As for herself, that was her own affair. Some day, perhaps, he might know more of the heart of a woman. She choked back tears, very beautifully, and military science suddenly became a trivial matter. But she was firm. He wanted to go, he must go, for a month anyhow. He went sadly. Into this opening breach rushed friends. It was the inestimable triumph of Judy Bowles to get there first. To begin with, Madeleine confided in her, and then, availing herself of the privilege of a distant cousinship, she commanded Douglas to tea in her Knightsbridge flat and had a good straight talk with him. She liked good straight talks with honest young men about their love affairs. It was almost the only form of flirtation that the professor— who was a fierce, tough, undiscriminating man upon the essentials of matrimony, permitted her. And there was something peculiarly gratifying about Douglas's complexion. Under her guidance, he was induced to declare that he could not live without Madeleine, that her love was the heart of his life. Without it he was nothing, and with it he would conquer the world." Judy permitted herself great protestations on behalf of Madeleine, and Douglas was worked up to the pitch of kissing her intervening hand. He had little silvery hairs, she saw, all over his temples, and he was such a simple, perplexed dear. It was a rich, deep, beautiful afternoon for Judy. And then, in a very obvious way, Judy, who was already deeply in love with the idea of a caravan tour, and the wind on the heath, and the gypsy life, and the open road, and all the rest of it, worked this charming little love difficulty into her scheme, utilized her reluctant husband to arrange for the coming of Douglas, confided in Mrs. Geege, and Douglas went off with his perplexities. He gave up all thought of France, weekended at Shonson's stead to his own grave injury, returned to London unexpectedly by a Sunday train, packed for France, and started. He reached Rheims on Monday afternoon, and then the image of Madeleine, which always became more beautiful and mysterious and commanding with every mile he put between them, would not let him go on. He made unconvincing excuses to the daily excess military expert with whom he was to have seen things. "'There's a woman in it, my boy, and you're a fool to go,' said the daily excess man. "'But of course you'll go, and I for one don't blame you.' He hurried back to London, and was at Judy's trysting place, even as Judy had anticipated. 
and when he saw madeleine standing in the sunlight pleased and proud and glorious with a smile in her eyes and trembling on her lips with a strand or so of her beautiful hair and a streamer or so of delightful blue flutterings in the wind about her gracious form it seemed to him for the moment that leaving the manoeuvres and coming back to england was quite a right and almost a magnificent thing to do End of chapter 5, part 1